Welcome, 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 welcome everybody to the Neurological Deep Dive. I am your host, Fared Fawns, and today we're going to have a great inspirational show from no one other than Gospel Dawn. Gospel Dawn is going to have something to say to you. Take a seat and listen. Thank you, Gospel Dawn, for coming through. Welcome, everyone, to the Gospel Hour with Dawn. I want to thank Simply KM Studios for featuring the Gospel Hour. And today's topic is this question Did Jesus turn water into intoxicating wine? First, I want to read the passage where this is uh, mentioned. And then I'm going to make comments on the passage, the Bible passage. And then I'm going to try to answer this question. Did Jesus turn the water into intoxicating wine? Or put another way, did Jesus approve of drinking alcohol as a beverage by turning the water into wine? So first, I'm reading now in the Bible. Uh, It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. And it, it goes like this. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto them, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So I want to make some comments. First, we can see that the Lord Jesus Christ sanctions and approves of marriage. In other words, he honors marriage by gracing this wedding with his presence. Also, Jesus did not uh, approve of celibacy more so than he did marriage. I think we can gather that from this passage. In uh, the Bible, it says that a bishop must be the husband of one wife and have his children in subjection with all gravity. So obviously the Bible does not condemn a bishop or a spiritual leader or a pastor from being married. So the celibate state is not elevated higher than the married state is what I'm trying to say here. Also, we could see that Jesus was not opposed opposed to feasting at certain times. There's a time to feast and a time not to feast. And Jesus here was attending a feast. And um, it was a wedding festival, you could say. And so the Lord uh, does not promote celibacy and asceticism as 
necessarily marks of true religion. It's okay to go without certain foods and to go without eating. That's fine. But celibacy and asceticism or a a rigid uh, conformity to unworldly appetites and unworldly things, that's not necessarily a proof of pure religion or pure Christianity. So that's one comment I wanted to make, that the Lord Jesus approved of marriage. And a lot of people today are not looking very favorably upon marriage. And uh, that's a sign that anti-Christian thinking is creeping into our society. Also, we see in verse 1 that Jesus' mother is called the mother of Jesus. She's not called the mother of God. She's not called the queen of heaven. She's called the mother of Jesus. The son of God is appointed our advocate or our mediator with the father. But Mary was never designed to be our advocate or our mediator with the Son. In other words, we can go to Jesus directly because he is everywhere present. And Jesus is the go-between between us and God. The Bible says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. She's called the mother of Jesus, never the mother of God in the Bible. And uh, this is obvious because Jesus existed in his pre-incarnate form, that is, before Mary existed. In fact, Jesus is the one who created the world. He created Adam, he created Abraham, he created David, and he created Mary. Jesus created everyone. So Jesus is the Son of God who existed before Mary did. So there's no way that God has a mother that implies that God, uh, that Mary existed before God. And uh, we do not believe that. That's not biblical. But Mary did exist before the, incarn- the incarnation of Jesus. And so that's important to know. Um, so here's another thing. Uh, in verse 4, it says, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. He calls her woman. That is not a, a disrespectful term, by the way. He always calls her woman. He even calls her a woman when he was at the cross. But here we see that the mother of Jesus comes to Jesus and says they have no wine. In other words, they lacked wine at the feast. And uh, we can see that Jesus is not swayed or influenced by his mother here, but he's swayed or influenced by his father. Jesus, when he said, my time is not yet come, my time as defined and as, as um, directed by his father had not yet come. That's what I believe um, it is saying here. And in verse 5, she says, His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. So we could see that Mary is encouraging people to obey Jesus. And by the way, that's what all Christians should be doing. We should be encouraging people to obey Jesus. Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. Those are very wise words that came from the mother of Jesus. And now we also see that a very real miracle took place. This miracle was not imaginary. It was real. There was water in those pots. And then when they began to draw the water out, it was wine. So the Lord Jesus turned the water into wine. So, and there was no debate here about what really took place because 
what they drank was wine, but what they put into those water pots was water. So this was not a fake miracle that a lot of people do these days. And I want to name one fake miracle that is being uh, performed by Roman Catholic priests at every Mass. They say that the wafer, which is a piece of bread, they pray and they bless that bread and consecrate it. And the priest apparently thinks he has the power to turn that wafer into the actual body and blood of Christ. Well, this is not a real miracle, and this is not verifiable. That's why we don't believe it. See, the wine that was once water looked like wine uh, after it was uh, created, after the wine was made out of the water. It looked like wine. It tasted like wine. It smelled like wine. All the properties of it appeared to be wine. Well, in the miracle of transubstantiation, which the Roman Catholic priest claims to be performing, the wafer looks like a wafer at first, tastes like a wafer, smells like a wafer, doesn't move like a wafer doesn't move. But we're told that that is the actual bodily Christ. We're, we're told that that's the actual Christ. In, in um, And it's him bodily. And if you deny that, then you're denying the word of God in their mind. Well, when you look at that wafer, you can tell that it, it doesn't look like Jesus, doesn't walk like Jesus, doesn't taste like Jesus, doesn't smell like Jesus. So every all your senses tell you that that's not Jesus. That is a piece of bread. And they're trying to tell us that there's a miracle, that that's the actual body and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your senses say tell you the exact opposite. So it, I, I guess this is what I'm trying to say. All the miracles that the Lord Jesus performed and that the apostles performed, were verifiable. They were provable. They were not imaginary. They were very obvious to the senses. And here we can see that the Lord Jesus literally turned water into wine. And because they knew it was a genuine miracle, it inspired belief in the minds of the disciples. And you read about that in verse 11. And we can apply this to any miracle that people, so-called men of God, appear to be performing today. You hear about the miracle of speaking in tongues. Well, there, if you really look at these Pente- Pentecostals who believe in the miracle of speaking in tongues, they're, they're not verifiable. It's, there's no way to verify that it's a real miracle. And they're not obvious. Those miracles are not obvious to the senses. What you hear is gibberish or unintelligible speech. And people are saying, well, that's another language. Well, prove it. There's no way to prove that that is a real, legitimate language somewhere in the world. And so it's unverifiable. So let's not be taken in by false miracles. I guess that's my point. So these are just some of the comments I wanted to make on on this passage. But the real question is this. Did Jesus approve of drinking alcohol as a beverage by turning water into wine. Now, he definitely did turn water into wine. There's no doubt about it. But here's another question. Was this wine fermented or unfermented? Now, based upon the following reasons that I'm going to give, I believe this wine was unfermented or at best very much diluted either with water or some other substance. 
I do not believe it was wine as the kind of wine that we buy now, nowadays, in America and in the West, Western countries, and even in the area of Israel. Um, the wine of today is very intoxicating and it's fermented. But I believe, based upon the following reasons, that this wine was unfermented or extremely weak. I tend to say it was unfermented. And that Christ opposed the drinking of alcohol as a beverage. Now, alcohol used as a medicine is justifiable in some cases, but to be used as a beverage, as something to drink when you're at a, a festival or at a feast, I don't believe the Lord Jesus turned this water into that kind of wine. And number one, the word wine is a, especially in the Bible, the word wine in the Bible is a general term that denotes the juice of the grape in all conditions, whether intoxicating or not. The word wine can refer to that which is a direct product of the land and unfermented, or it can refer to that which man must manufacture and is fermented. It's a lot like cider. Apple cider, cider comes from the juice of apples. Well, Apple cider can be intoxicating or it can be not intoxicating. It can be fermented or unfermented. And um, it's the same way with wine. It could be fermented or unfermented. Now, I made this statement. Wine can refer to that which is a direct product of the land. And I'd like us to check out some verses here in the Bible that show this to be true. And again, you, you can do your own studying on these things. And that's why I'm going to give you the reference and, and read them. In Genesis chapter 27 and verse 28, this is when... Isaac was blessing Jacob, who he thought he was blessing his other son, Esau, but he was actually blessing Jacob because he was not aware that, his, that Jacob was fooling his dad here. And so here is what he says. This is what Isaac says of the blessing of Jacob. Therefore God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth, and plenty of corn and wine. Well, that that corn and wine speaks of that which is a that which sustains life. It's basically a main staple of food, corn and wine. That's basically what it speaks of. And in another place in Genesis forty nine, we read that wine is the blood of grapes. That's in 49, verse 11, Genesis 49, verse 11. So wine is the blood of grapes, or it's also been called the fruit of the vine. So right here, we it's safe to assume that this corn and wine that Jacob would be blessed, blessed with and his descendants speaks of the necessaries of life or the necessities of life. Now, in Deuteronomy, we have another passage. Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 14, and we read this, that I will give you the rain of your land in his due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. Again, fermented wine does not necessarily grow naturally. I'm not sure if it can 
if uh, fermented wine ever comes out of the, the vine when it's, fr uh, you know, uh, directly out of the vine. I believe when, it, when the grape juice comes out of the vine, it's generally, if not always, unfermented. So here it's speaking again of the necessities of life, corn and wine and oil. These are all basically staples, food staples. And so there's that verse. Uh, here's another one. It's in Psalm 104 and reading verse 13. It says, He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle and herb for the service of man, that he may bring forth food out of the earth and wine that maketh glad the heart of man and oil to make his face to shine and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. So all these things bring benefit to the, to the human constitution, wine and oil and uh, bread, of course. And again, these are spoken as the necessaries of life or the necessities of life. In Isaiah, we have another one. In Isaiah chapter, I'm turning to Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 1, it says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now God is asking them to come and, and come to him if you're thirsty and he will take care of you. God is, is there to help us. But it's very, um, it doesn't make sense for God to say, come buy Budweiser or buy Boone's Farm wine or this kind of, uh, or some kind of wine that's intoxicating. It's very unlikely that God is referring here to wine as that which is intoxicating. And that's in Isaiah chapter 55. And here's another one. It's in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 17. And we read this. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful and new wine the maids. So see, corn makes glad the heart. It makes people cheerful. Well, so does new wine make the maids cheerful. In other words, corn does not intoxicate and neither does this wine intoxicate. And there is a difference between wine and strong drink and new wine. There are nuances and differences between some of them. So right here, if corn makes people cheerful and it's not intoxicating, then the wine can make people cheerful too. And it does not need to be intoxicating. So these are just some of the references that show that the corn and wine, and there's others. I, I could mention Numbers 18, chapter 18, verse 12, and Isaiah 65, verse 8. And there's others that I could mention that kind of show that wine is not necessarily fermented. Now, what are the verses that refer to wine as being fermented? Well, there's quite a few of those in the Bible. Probably most of the time when it talks about wine, it's talking talking about fermented wine. Well, I'm going to read now in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 7. It says, But they also have erred through wine, and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way 
through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. And that is a powerful verse that shows the effects of wine. And in verse 1 of the same chapter of Isaiah 28, it, it mentions this, that they are overcome with wine. So wine or alcoholic beverages should be shunned and avoided because, number one, it can overcome a person. It actually takes over the appetite. Uh, the person's appetite for wine becomes stronger than the faculty of reason. Reason says, no, if I drink, I'm going to pay for it in the end, or somebody else will pay for it, or I'm going to say things I shouldn't say. That's what the reason tells you. That's what God's Word tells us. But wine, the appetite for wine, is often stronger than a person's rational thinking. And um, so that so it can overcome a person. In other words, and uh, another way that wine um, can have a bad effect on people is that it leads people astray and into error, as I just read in verse 7. It, it impairs sound judgment and discernment. People's inhibitions are ruined through alcohol. People will say things and do things that they would not normally do if they were not under the influence of alcohol. So alcohol has a, a very um, destructive influence on people. And also in the same passage in chapter 8 and ver in chapter 28, I should say, and verse 8, it says, For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. And that's what alcohol tells to do, tends to do, tends to make people sick and then they vomit. So, um, so this is one passage that talks about alcohol as being a very destructive force. Another passage is in Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 11. It says this, Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink that continue until night, till wine inflame them. And that's what wine does. It can inflame the passions. And uh, if you would look in the same chapter, in verse 22, it says, Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of, of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. So here you could see that wine... Uh, tends to blur a person's sense of right and wrong and tends to blur their judgment. That's why it's not wise for a judge to be drinking alcohol. Evil men understand not judgment, it says in Proverbs 28, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. So, and wine tends to make people evil and do things that they should not do, that their conscience tells them that they should not do. And so, when people in positions of power drink alcohol, you're going to get bad leadership. This is true for prophets, for priests, for pastors, and for politicians, and for judges. Um, I would never vote for a judge who drinks alcohol, just to let you know. I, uh, that's a good question to ask a judge if you're going to vote for a judge or for a politician. If they drink alcohol, that's a good sign that they should not be in, in a position of power. Also in Hosea chapter 4, verse 11, we read, Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. This is the effect that alcohol 
has on people. And also in Proverbs chapter 20, we read this. Verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Now, to be not wise means to be foolish. It means to be irrational. Wine is a mocker. In other words, wine disappoints. Wine raises the expectations, but, but does not fulfill them. It mocks you. It laughs at you. It treats you with scorn. Ha ha, see, look what I've done to you. Wine is a mocker. Wine promises satisfaction and happiness, but it doesn't deliver it. Instead, what does it do? It bites you. And that's what wine does. Strong drink, that's another way of saying alcohol, alcoholic drink, is raging. That means it's furious. It will do damage. And it says, whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In other words, it, it deceives you. It deceives you into thinking that you'll be happy if you take this and your, or your problems will go away or this is a way to get relief. But it never delivers. So it's a, it's a mocker. Now, this wine here is definitely talking about fermented wine in, uh, in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. So these are just some of the verses. Uh, another big one, important verse that talks about alcohol is in Proverbs chapter 23, beginning to read at verse 29. It says this, Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. You see, there's no way Jesus would have produced this kind of wine at the wedding in Cana. Because wine causes what? Woe. It causes sorrow. It brings sorrow. It brings contentions, arguments, and disputes. It brings babbling. Babbling means talking for nothing or speaking nonsense, saying things that get other people riled up. Who hath wounds without cause? Yeah, some people get wounds because they're involved in some good thing. You know, they're a hard worker and they get hurt at work. Okay, that's, that's a good cause for getting hurt. Or they're in a military exercise and they end up getting hurt. Okay, that's a, a wound that somebody gets, but there's a good cause at least. But alcohol, if you get wounded because of alcohol, that's not a good cause. It's not a good cause. And then it says, who hath redness of eyes? That would be bloodshot eyes. And that's the effect of alcohol. And then I'm continuing to read in verse 31 in Proverbs 23. It says, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Okay, now it says here in the Bible to not look upon it because a look generally leads to taking part in it. So it says, don't look. In other words, we should uh, not give in to the first approaches of temptation. The first approaches of sin, we should not give in to them. Avoid it. Don't look at, this, at, at it, because the look may lead to actually enjoying it or taking it. And then it says, and, and so here, here's the thing, would Jesus, would Jesus make something and at the same time say, don't look at it. Well, of course, the wine that Jesus made was something they could look at. And I don't believe Jesus would have made intoxicating wine. Verse 32 of chapter 23 says this, At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. An adder is some kind of snake. 
Thine eyes shall behold strange women, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea, or as he that lieth upon the top of a mast. A mast would be a pole that holds the sail on a ship, and uh, that would be a quite a place to be, and uh, because you'd probably get seasick if you'd be up there for any time. And that's what alcohol does. It tends to make you sick and uncomfortable. Verse 35 says, They have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. In other words, alcohol is habit-forming. You pay a price, it bites you, but what do you do? You go right back to it. And um, so that's why uh, my position, and I believe it's consistent with the Bible, is that we should be total abstainers of alcohol. Now, that's one reason why I believe Jesus did not turn the water into intoxicating wine. Because wine sometimes can be unfermented. But a lot of times in Scripture, it is fermented. Number two, by making intoxicating wine available to drink, Jesus would have contradicted his commands to be sober and vigilant and temperate. And those commands are mentioned in the Bible. One of them is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. The devil is out to devour us, destroy us, ruin us. So that's why we should be sober and walk circumspectly, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5. We should walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Circumspectly means um, carefully and with a view to the consequences of your decisions. We should think before we act, in other words. And the Lord Jesus and the Bible else in, in several places teaches us to be sober. Well, how can you obey that command to be sober while you're drinking a glass of beer or a glass of wine? Um, that's hard to be sober while you're drinking alcohol. Number three, if there would have been recovering alcoholics at the wedding feast, Jesus would have contributed to their relapse into sin. And for that reason, I don't believe Jesus would have made alcoholic wine. And I'm reading now. It's in Romans chapter 14 and verse 21. It says this, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Offended means caused to sin. So we should not do anything that would cause my brother or my children to go down a wrong road or to be offended. In other words, to be caused to sin. When parents drink alcohol, what are they doing? They're offending their children. They're actually uh, in ca causing them or influencing them to follow their example. And that's not a good thing. And so the verse 22 says this, Hast thou faith? In other words, do you have confidence about something? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he, and he that doubteth is damned, that means condemned, if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith 
is sin. Okay, so it says, he that doubteth is damned, condemned. If he, he, in other words, if you know that there's a practice that is questionable and you think you might be wrong or you might be bad if you engage in that practice, and there's no way you could be wrong if you don't engage in that practice. Well, if you go ahead and engage in that questionable practice, you're doing it in doubt. That means you're not convinced that what you're doing is actually right. So when you violate your conscience, you're actually in a state of condemnation because you're doing something that you think might be wrong. So that's what I believe this passage is saying. So anything that is questionable, when you know omitting it is never questionable, but doing it is questionable, then you should just not do it. This applies to alcohol. This applies to any substance that somebody wants to be involved in. It applies to gambling. It applies to the kind of music you listen to. If you think your music might be displeasing to God, but you're not 100% sure, but you go ahead and listen to it and enjoy it and help others to enjoy it, what are you doing? You're violating your conscience. You're not eating of faith. That word, when it says he eateth not of faith, means he's not eating or he's not taking part in that practice from a strong conviction that it is right because in his mind it's questionable. So as a rule, questionable practices ought to be abandoned. And then it says, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. In other words, if I do something and I'm not clear in my conscience that that thing is right, then that would be sin. Conviction here is the assurance that one's standard is right. And so that's what we ought to do. So if there would have been recovering alcoholics at the wedding feast, Jesus would have contributed to their relapse into sin, and he would have violated this principle that I just read in Romans chapter 14, verse 21, that says, It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Here's another reason why I don't believe Jesus made intoxicating wine. The Bible commands us to abstain from all appearance of evil. It says that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22. When alcohol is made available at parties, evil of some sort is bound to follow because alcohol dulls the senses and blurs the judgment. That's just a fact. It tends to do that. It may not do that to the same degree in every person, but it does dull the senses to some extent. So that's number four. Here's another another reason why I believe Jesus did not turn water into intoxicating wine. If Jesus told us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, then how could he have made available that substance which often leads to some degree of temptation? One glass of beer ingested as a beverage usually calls for another and it reduces moral restraint. And you can read about that in that passage I already read in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 7. So one glass 
of alcohol usually calls for another. So how do you avoid the temptation of taking three or four glasses of beer or cans of beer or something? Well, you don't take one. So how do you pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation? I think what that means is this, Lord, bring us not into trials that may endanger our souls. I think that's what he that prayer is saying, lead us not into temptation. Lord, let me not go through trials that are so severe that they'll hurt my soul. Let me, in other words, don't bring me into tempting situations. Well, how do you pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation? And then you enter a bar where alcohol, you know, where alcohol is sold. Well, you're, it's not enough to pray. You have to act. And uh, prayers will not save us from trouble alone. We do, should pray and ask God to help us, but we've also got to do our part. But we must realize too, in praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation, that we've got to also submit to whatever trials of our virtue that God pleases to allow. Sometimes God allows trials to come our way, designed to test our virtue. And this is what God pleases to do. And sometimes we need to have our virtue tested by temptations because that's how we get stronger. It can help us to grow because every temptation resisted acts as a stepping stone to resist other temptations. That's important. So um, that's against the Lord for for how, you know, if we're to pray, lead us not into temptation. And, uh, and then a Lord... Again, the Lord Jesus makes tempting alcohol, alcoholic beverage, available. Then he would be going against what he what he really wants. See, he in in the in the Lord's prayer, it also says, "Let thy will be done as it is in heaven, so on earth." So in heaven, they're not drinking alcohol; they're not getting drunk in heaven. So as it is done in heaven, so let it be done here on earth. Number six. It seems most unlikely that Jesus made alcoholic wine to be offered as a beverage because of what I just read in Proverbs chapter 23. And it says in verse 31, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it moveth itself aright. At the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. An adder would be a snake. Thine eyes shall behold strange women. That means women not belonging to you, not your wife. And thine heart shall utter perverse things. You will tell jokes that you regret. You will utter concepts and things and things you said that you will regret when you're sober. And so that's what wine does. It does alter your state of thinking and your ability to judge, make righteous judgments. Would Jesus have offered drink that tends to incite lust and foul speech? I don't think so. That's why I don't believe Jesus made intoxicating drink. Here's another reason. Alcohol is intoxicating. That word intoxicate comes from the word toxic. And toxic means poison or poisonous. So alcohol is a poison. According to the Bible and according to good scientists. Uh, it does, it's not food. Alcohol is not food. It does not nourish tissues. The body does not like to retain the stuff. 
because it says in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 37, it says the wine was gone out of Nabal. In other words, the body rejects that stuff. It does not, it's not nutrition. And of course, it stings like a snake, as I already mentioned, and it causes sickness. And there's another place in Hosea where it says the same thing. It causes sickness. Alcohol does. And uh, I think we all know that, anybody who's taken alcohol. And I'm reading in chapter 7 of Hosea, and chapter 7, verse 5, says, In the day of our king, the princes have made him sick with bottles of wine. That's what it says right there in Hosea. So it does cause sickness. Number eight, Jesus knew that all drunkards will be excluded from heaven because that's what he had the Apostle Paul write in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. We read there that no drunkard shall enter into the kingdom of God. And it mentions fornicators. It mentions the effeminate. That means womanish men. And it mentions... Uh, I believe adulterers and other all kinds of other sins, idolaters, and of course drunkards, will not, will not, uh, excuse me there, will not enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus knew that. So if a drunk won't go to heaven, then how would Jesus help people to get drunk by making intoxicating wine? And it's important to know that all drunkards are made out of moderate drinkers. I do believe that every person who's a drunk, who's got a problem with alcohol, was once a moderate drinker, or what you could call was, you'd call them a social drinker, they call them. And um, so, so the best thing is to totally abstain from alcohol. That's the position that I take that I think is most biblical. Would Christ put a stumbling block or an occasional fall in his brother's way? I don't believe so. In Romans, I was there a while ago and I'm there again. Chapter 14 and verse 13, it says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now, it says here, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. Now, remember, he's speaking of things that are morally indifferent. Things about which the Bible is not clear or it does not state principles on it. So we should keep our judgments to ourselves if we, we have no scripture to back up what we believe is right or wrong. So I believe that's what it's talking It's talking about things that are morally indifferent or it's talking about doubtful disputations. And that's what it says in verse 1 there. It says, of chapter 14, it says, Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful dispensations. In other words, don't reject a believer who holds to indifferent or non-moral opinions. Some, some opinions are indifferent. They're non-moral. And so, therefore, we should reserve judgment. Now, here's another reason. Would Jesus have violated Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 15? Let me read that verse. In Habakkuk, in the Old Testament, it says, quote, Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink, that putteth thy bottle to him, and makest him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness, end quote. So we could see that alcohol leads to indecent exposure. And we learn that also 
The first time you read about alcohol or wine in the Bible, it's in Genesis chapter 9, right after Noah came out of the boat and he had a vineyard and he made some wine and he got drunk and he was naked because he was drunk. And it led him to be naked. We don't know how or why. And his one of his sons actually did not uh, did not react in a right way. I'll just put it that way. He should have covered him. The others did not want to look at their dad's naked, and uh, he, he didn't. So that one son did not act appropriately when his dad, his father, was drunk. Now who knows? Maybe they did not know the effects of alcohol. I'm not going to blame Noah. Noah was a great man. But that was definitely a low point in Noah's life. Remember, he lived about 900 years. So the Bible, uh, you could tell the Bible is inspired by God because it doesn't gloss over the faults of its heroes. The greatest of men, sometimes the Bible will show their faults and their low points. And I think it's safe to say that the greatest of men are only men at their best. Or the best of men are only men at their best. However, you see there the effects of alcohol in Genesis chapter 9. Number 11. We are to abhor that which is evil. That word evil means harmful or destructive. And then it says we are to cleave to that which is good. That which is not harmful, not destructive. Well, everybody knows that alcohol is a destructive force. Now, is alcohol sometimes useful? The answer is yes. When alcohol is used as a medicine, it can do some good. But it has to be used as a medicine, not as a beverage. When it's used as a beverage, it, it does no good. But if it's used as a medicine, it may be fine and helpful. And I'm reading now in Proverbs chapter 31, and beginning to read at verse 4, it says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. You see how, again how alcohol, wine, intoxicating wine, would cause people to forget the law or to pervert judgment or to pervert justice. And then right after in verse 6, it says, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish. Okay, he's on his deathbed. Today they use morphine to, to deaden the pain. Well, they didn't have that kind of stuff apparently in that time. They would use, or if they did, I don't know. But it does say that alcohol can sometimes deaden pain to somebody who is in excruciating pain. Because they're dying, let's say. So it says, Give strong drink unto him that is ready to perish, and wine unto those that be of heavy hearts. So it can have medicinal value. And of course, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, oh, before I go there, I want to finish the, the verse. Verse 7 says this, Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. So yes, alcohol can cause you to temporarily Forget your misery. Somebody perhaps who is in a very highly excited state because going through a lot of trauma, maybe the alcohol might serve as a medicine to calm the person down so that he won't, he or she won't do anything extravagant or excessive or harmful to himself or to others. So it may have that effect, but we must be careful. Today they have painkillers and that are pretty effective. And they have other things. But even there, we got to be careful of painkillers because they can be uh, habit-forming. But when alcohol is used as a beverage, it always does harm. And I was talking about 1 Timothy chapter 5. It mentions uh, Paul is telling Timothy 
to use a little wine for his stomach's sake and for thine often infirmities, so weaknesses or sicknesses. So it can have a medicinal value. But like everything in life, we have to use it in moderation. To drink too much wine is not good, of course. And uh, so we have to be careful. And here's the last, number 12, is taking a glass of beer or a glass of wine consistent with this precept that was inspired by the Lord Jesus Christ? This is what Jesus had the Apostle Paul write. He said, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So it is a myth, I believe, that Jesus made intoxicating wine. Or if it was intoxicating, it was extremely weak, so weak that it probably wouldn't have a bad effect on anybody there at that festival. So that's the only position I think is is consistent with all of Scripture. And uh, we need to base our beliefs on all of Scripture, not just on one passage or one verse. And uh, that's what I've I've tried to do. Hopefully this has been very useful to you. But it is only as myths are debunked and truth is put into practice that sinners will get saved and that Christians will revive and be strong in the Lord. So I want to urge you to make a commitment to totally abstain from alcohol as a beverage. The Lord Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. That is the solution for an appetite for alcohol. It is to turn your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ because that's why God created you. That's why God created me. He created us for the one purpose of glorifying God, for that one purpose of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind and loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's why we're alive. That's every person's purpose on earth. And the way to fulfill that purpose, to accomplish that purpose, is to obey the laws of God. And one of them is don't don't allow yourself to become drunk. Thank you so much for listening. God bless.